divided kingdom. Divided kingdom. And with our brief break last week with visiting missionaries, coupled with our break with our Holy Week where we jumped ahead in, in our daily devotional and moved into the New Testament for that week as we covered the Palm Sunday and Good Friday and, of course, Easter with our Resurrection Sunday. I just want to take a few minutes this morning and kind of catch everybody back up to speed with where we had left off. A lot of life seems to have happened in those two weeks. And so also for my benefit, too, that we kind of review just a little bit where we were. Well, I start out with God is staying faithful to his promises. Now, I don't know that we could say that every single week. God is staying faithful to his promises. And this specific um, time in the Old Testament is he's staying faithful to the promise that he had given to David, that he would always have an heir on the throne. And this promise that God had given to David was going to have present fulfillment, but it was also going to have future fulfillment. And the present fulfillment had happened when Solomon, his son, was put on the throne. And that had happened just before David's death. And King Solomon started out his reign strong. In fact, one of his first recorded actions as king was asking God for wisdom. And who knows that when we sincerely ask God for wisdom, he will pour it out on us generously. Anybody experience God's wisdom like that? He is faithful. And so we know as God never changes, he is always faithful. He did give Solomon the wisdom that he had asked for. And Solomon became known far and wide for his wisdom. Solomon was also given the privilege of being able to build the, the temple of God, this worship center for the nation of Israel. It was magnificent. All foreigners would come to see the temple and it's been said that Solomon's vast program of building and expansion brought fame and glory to the nation of Israel. Somewhere along the way, though, somewhere between the reception of the wisdom that God had poured out on him and the notoriety, Solomon's values changed. Somewhere along the way, he became more interested in material wealth than spiritual blessing. Somewhere along the way, he lost sight of what the guidelines were for a king of Israel. He chose to build up this large stable. He accumulated large amounts of wealth at the expense of his people. He took many wives, 700 in fact, now, if that doesn't display that he lost his wisdom, I'm not sure what will. <laughs> Many of these women that became his wives were foreigners. And he allowed them to worship their gods. And then he went into building them temples and shrines so that they could have a place to worship them. And then he began to go with them and partake in the worship of these foreign gods. 
He neglected worshiping the one true God. Somewhere along the way, Solomon's values changed. Of course, we understand that God knew that those going off the the trail with him and neglecting to worship him were going to have consequences, not just for Solomon, but for the nation. And so God was angry with Solomon as he had turned away from the Lord. And scripture tells us that God warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon didn't listen. And so the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. And God did just as he said he would do. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning in Divided Kingdom. And this morning I'm going to do something a little different. Sometimes I've read from the message, but I'm going to read the majority of the passage um, for this morning from the message. And uh, it's just a, a paraphrase of the Bible. Eugene Peterson, a very, I mean, he's, he was pastor for many, many years. And, and he had gone through all of Scripture and wrote it out with his understanding and, and in very conversational in today's language. And so on a narrative like this, it, it just has got a really good flow to it. And that's why I've chosen to do the message today. So hopefully it doesn't throw you off if you brought your Bible and because it'll be a little bit different. But the year is around 931 B.C. Solomon's died. His son Rehoboam has just become king. And so before we read the passage, just take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is instruction to us. And Lord, today's uh, passage is is a cautionary uh, passage to, to warn us, to help us to see what not to do as we walk out our faith with you. And so Lord, we pray that you would take this and instruct our hearts and our minds this morning so that we will be more equipped to worship you. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, 1 Kings, starting with verse 1 of chapter 12, starts out with, Rehoboam traveled to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to inaugurate him as king. Jeroboam, now this is going to be an important sentence here as we go on through the morning. Jeroboam had been in Egypt, where he had taken asylum from King Solomon. When he had got the report of Solomon's death, he had come back. So just a teeny bit of background for Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a servant of, of Solomon. And when a prophet had come and told him a little message, um, Solomon kind of reacted to it and sought to kill him. And so Jeroboam fled to Egypt to avoid being killed by Solomon. And so that will come into play in a minute here. But Rehoboam assembled Jeroboam and all the people. They said to Rehoboam, your father made life hard for us, worked our fingers to the bone. Give us a break, lighten up on us, and we'll willingly serve you. Give me three days to think it over, then come back, Rehoboam said. 
King Rehoboam talked it over with the elders who had advised his father when he was alive. What's your counsel? How do you suggest that I answer the people? They said, if you will be a servant to this people, be considerate of their needs and respond with compassion, work things out with them, they'll end up doing anything for you. Now there's some wise counsel there. Leaders are to be servants. It certainly appears that Rehoboam was in that financial position, having inherited the wealth of his father Solomon, that he could have eased the burden that had been placed on the people. Heeding this godly advice would have been given Rehoboam the, the trust, the admiration of the people. The people would have felt heard and respected. Their response would have been loyalty and honor. They would have served him with gratitude. But unfortunately, Rehoboam did not heed the wise, godly counsel of his elders. He rejected it and sought counsel of his friends instead. It's kind of like going from one parent not getting the answer you want, so you turn to the next parent to hopefully get the answer that you want. That's what Rehoboam did with his advisors. And so he had rejected that counsel, sought the counsel of his friends, and ultimately told the people this. If you think life under my father was hard, you haven't seen the half of it. My father thrashed you with whips, I'll beat you with bloody chains. Now, it's kind of like saying if you thought you had it bad before, just wait. It's going to be even worse for you under my leadership. Now, I don't think we need a PhD in leadership to understand that this really is not the way to start out as a leader. Could you imagine if, if that would happen with an elected official that they just declared, you know what, life's going to be a whole lot worse for you. Of course, they won't do that today because then they won't get reelected, but it was different back then with kings. But the people, of course, responded vehemently, rejecting Rehoboam's leadership, and they revolted, resulting in the division of the kingdom, just as God said that he would do. With the kingdom divided, only one tribe, the tribe of Judah, remained completely committed to Rehoboam. The Bible tells us that to some degree, the tribe of Benjamin remained as well. But the other ten tribes, they followed Jeroboam's leadership and made him king of the northern kingdom called Israel. Unfortunately, Jeroboam's leadership was just as disastrous for the people, perhaps even more so. Again, reading from the message, picking it up with verse 25, it says, Jeroboam made a fort at Shechem in the hills of Ephraim and made that his headquarters. He also built a fort at Penuel. But then Jeroboam thought, it won't be long before the kingdom is reunited under David. As soon as these people resume worship at the temple of God in Jerusalem, they'll start thinking of Rehoboam, king of Judah, as their ruler. Then they'll kill me and go back to King Rehoboam. So the king came up with a plan. He made two golden calves. Then he announced, it's too much trouble for you to go to Jerusalem to worship. Look at these, the gods that brought you out of Egypt. He put one calf in Bethel, the other he placed in Dan. It was blatant sin. 
Think of it. People traveling all the way to Dan to worship a calf. And that wasn't the end of it. Jeroboam built forbidden shrines all over the place, recruited priests from wherever he could find them, regardless of whether they were fit for the job or not. To top it off, he created a holy New Year festival to be held on the 15th day of the eighth month to replace the one in Judah, complete with worship offered at the altar of Bethel and sacrificing before the calves he had set up there. He staffed Bethel with the priests from the local shrines he had made. This was strictly his own idea, to compete with the feast in Judah, and he carried it off with flair a festival exclusively for Israel, Jeroboam himself leading the worship at the altar. Now I think it should be easy for us to pick up with the main thing that's wrong with this picture because we know that we're not to worship anyone or anything besides the one true God. We're not to worship worthless idols. But what might not be so obvious is that at this time all Jewish men were required to travel to the temple three times a year. But in an effort to guard his position, Jeroboam set up his own worship center. In essence, he was telling the people, it's too much trouble for you to travel all the way to Jerusalem. Worship here in these places I have set up for your benefit. You know, as I read the passage for this week, I was reminded of one of my instructors from North Central University. He would start the class the same way every time. He would say, people will fail you. Organizations will guard their territory. But God will remain faithful. God is faithful. Every class period. And this principle is certainly displayed here in 1 Kings chapter 12. Both Jeroboam and Rehoboam did what was good for themselves, not what was good for the people. Rehoboam was harsh and didn't listen to the people. Jeroboam established new places of worship to keep his people from traveling to Jerusalem, Rehoboam's capital. Both actions backfired. Rehoboam's move divided the nation. And Jeroboam's, even more disastrous, he turned, as he turned the people's hearts from God. They both sought to guard their territory, and in doing so failed the people. Neither modeled godly leadership. Maybe you recall Jesus' teaching on godly leadership recorded for us in the book of Mark. One day Jesus had met with his disciples and two of them had asked uh, for a favor. They asked that they'd each get to sit on one side or the other of Jesus when he entered his kingdom. Of course, when the other disciples heard what the two disciples were asking for, resentment bubbled up in them and so Jesus decided it was a good time for a teaching moment. And so Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 42, this is what Jesus instructed his disciples with. He said, so Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. 
but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Godly leadership is countercultural. It puts others before yourself. Whether it be in your home or your workplace, your community or in your church, we want to seek to live and serve humbly. In contrast, the world is going to tell us to climb that ladder, to elevate ourselves at all costs, to measure greatness by the high personal achievement, to put our ego-inflated needs before the welfare of others. And that's exactly what Rehoboam and Jeroboam did. The reality is even that, though with the best of intentions, human leaders will fail us. And that's why it's critical that we don't put our hope in man. Turning to our companion book, the author writes, It's been said, and rightly so, that the one thing humans cannot live without is hope, because we cannot live without it. We will always find something in which to put our hope, even if it's in the wrong thing. The people of Israel placed their hopes and dreams on something that could not bear that freight. They trusted in their kings as if Saul, David, and Solomon could usher in the fulfillment of God's promises. But they were just men. They couldn't keep their promises to God individually any more than the people could collectively. They were human and they failed. They trusted in human power and ingenuity rather than relying on the one who had gotten them this far in the first place. They found out the hard way. What happens when you trust a person to accomplish what only God can? Our trust is terribly misplaced when it's put in the hands of human beings or a program conceived by a human initiative or a building constructed by human hands. None of these things are bad or evil in themselves, but none of these things will ever fulfill our deepest longings. We will always find ourselves let down, disappointed, and discouraged by the things of the earth. When our trust is appropriately placed, though, we find an amazing quality of life that is unavailable otherwise, As we allow Jesus to be the fulfillment of our deepest longings and desires by placing him at the center of all of our activities, everything we do is not only infused with meaning and purpose, but has the potential to allow us participation with God in bringing about the fulfillment of his greatest dream. The kingdom was divided, but it will one day be reunited. And that's what God is doing even now. By embedding our story within his, we're allowed to participate with him in the greatest adventure of all. That's what it really means to keep hope alive. It's putting our hope in Christ alone. The world is going to offer us lots of different counterfeits, money, fame, false religions, even people. 
But if we put our hope in anyone or anything other than Christ, we will at some point be disappointed. Because at any point, those things can be taken away. At any point, a person may disappoint you or also be called home. Christ, the coming king, is the only one worthy of putting our hope in because he's never going to fail us. He's never going to let us down. So we want to put our hope in Christ. You'll never be disappointed. The Bible says this in regards to hope from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. It says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now when I read this passage, for those of you who who know I have this love affair with running, this really speaks to me because I know what it's like to run and grow weary. Of course, God's word is talking about the spiritual side of things. But this love affair of, of running that I have um, stemmed way back from I was about 12 years old. In fact, Pat and I ran on this cross-country team together, the track team together. We also coached track as we were married and our kids were in school. And When you think about the different kinds of running, you look at the sprint and, and it's all about the start. It's all about how you're going to be able to quickly respond to the starter's gun. It's how you're going to be able to explode out of your starting blocks and how you're going to run as fast as you possibly can and just hope that you can get to the end of the race and finish. But when you start running half marathons and 30Ks, which I've done, haven't quite made the marathon, and I keep saying yet, but... You have to change your mindset for things like that. It's a lot more about perseverance. It's a lot less emphasis on the start and a whole lot more on how you finish. And running is a great analogy for life, especially the life of faith in Christ. Turning back to our companion book for one more time this morning. The author writes, life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not how you start that determines your success. It's how you finish. This lesson is brought home firmly in both the stories of Solomon and the nation of Israel. Solomon started off so well, so full of promise. He had so much going for him. It seemed like everything he touched turned to gold. He listened to God and responded with obedience. God blessed him with wisdom unlike any other human being who had ever lived before. Solomon amassed a fortune and set a new standard of dignity among the leaders of God's people. But as so often happens, his success slowly turned to complacency, opening the door for compromise and disaster. He lost touch with the legitimate needs of his people, He became self-indulgent and began to listen more and more to his pagan wives, catering to their religious desires rather than maintaining his own integrity. When Solomon began his reign, there was no doubt that there was just one God. 
But by the end of his reign, there was a hill east of Jerusalem with shrines built to just about every other god of the surrounding nations. The magnificent temple that Solomon had worked so hard to build stood as just one of the many possible options. A visitor could quickly come to the conclusion that Yahweh was but one of many possible gods. Solomon did so many great things for God during the first half of his life. Unfortunately, he spent the second half of his life undoing a lot of the good that he had accomplished. His father David had handed him a kingdom that was united and at peace. Solomon handed his son Rehoboam a kingdom that was divided and on the brink of civil war. And so the message today really has two different components to it. The first one is who are we putting our trust in? Is it solidly 100% in God? Or if somebody looked at your life, would they see those other possibilities? They may not be in a building form like they were with Solomon. But there are other possibilities that would people would say, yep, kind of looks like they're putting their hope in and fill in the blank. Don't put your hope in man. They will disappoint you at some point. Put true hope in the one true God. The other side of it is, is are we finishing well? None of us knows the number of our days, no matter what age we are. Are we finishing well? Or have we grown complacent? Have we allowed other things to creep in, just like Solomon did? Are we guarding what we're listening to? Are we guarding what we're seeing? Are we guarding our integrity and our character? Are we spending time in God's word Or are we just thinking, well, God's full of grace, and so, well, it's really not all that important. Scripture is going to tell us we have to stay connected to the vine in order to be fruitful. When we look at the possibility of spring and all the blossoms and all the setting on of fruit, we want our lives to be like that as well. But the only way we're going to be able to be that is if we stay connected to the vine which is Jesus Christ. And we do that through reading the word. We do that through prayer. That's how we guard our integrity. That's how we guard against growing complacent. So how are you doing today? Who are you putting your trust in? And are you guarding against complacency? Because complacency is going to lead to compromise. And compromise is going to lead to disaster. And I don't want anyone in our church going down that road because I love you too much.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, even in these tough passages where you you display what can happen in a life that started so well but ended in disaster. Lord, not only for Solomon and Rehoboam and Lord, it it pains our heart to see a, a family start off so well and to have disaster hit, all because they allowed complacency to move into compromise. Lord, help us to guard our hearts against complacency. Help us to seek to grow even more and more in love with who you are, to increase our understanding of who you are, because when we increase our understanding of who you are, we increase our understanding of who we are in you. So Lord, help us to not grow complacent. Help us to take very seriously the staying connected to you, the vine, the one that's going to give us life, the one that's going to lead us on an adventure um, like none other. Lord, help us to maintain our integrity and our character, not just for the sprint, but for the long run. Lord, that we would not disqualify ourselves from the prize, that we would not take your grace lightly, but Lord, that we would seek to serve you with all that we are, Lord, our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole body, and our whole soul. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I I just pray right now for anyone in the room that is feeling their heart being convicted by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would reassure them that forgiveness is available to them. That it isn't so much the start, it's the finish that you have in mind and Lord, that you'll help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to get back on track. Lord, that forgiveness is available. And Lord, if there's anyone in the room this morning that hasn't even started the race yet, Lord, they haven't received you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today is the day that they know that that is available to them, that it is a simple but yet profound just believing that you came, died on the cross for them, rose from the dead, defeating death and removing our sin. We just need to believe. That's where the adventure starts. Lord, if there's anyone here, may they know what they need to do. Just whisper in their heart, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you died for my sins. I receive that. And with that, I'm given new life in Christ. Lord, we thank you. You are so good to us. May we live lives of integrity with hearts of gratitude for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.